This week on Plot Points Podcast, we discuss what genre is easiest to write. Spoiler alert, none of them. MC finds a show that her fiancé likes that isn't Family Guy, and Mark takes us to Gilligan's Island. Not that Gilligan. This is Plot Points Podcast. Hi, welcome to uh, Plot Points Podcast. My name's Mark Sevy. I'm here with my co-host, Mary Claire Anderson. Hi. And our engineer slash producer slash man about town, Toby Walwork. Hello. <laughs> He's getting all sexy time on us. but uh, It's because last week I tried to go high like Mary Claire and I just... It I didn't work. Down, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm going to go down here. Okay. All right. I'll, we'll all try to go down Let's there. We'll go down here. We'll, we'll have that... Uh, take that balloon... Yes, never mind. Um... So it's been a kind of a slow week for me with everything that, um, that's been going on tangential to my writing life. And I'm not really watching that much, although I did dip into Star Trek Enterprise, which I like because of the let's create the origin of all the tropes in the Star Trek universe, uh, like the phase pistols and the Vulcan mind meld. And uh, they didn't even have um, phaser cannons, I think, when the ship took off, which which so whether it's, you know, true to the canon of the show or not, I'm enjoying watching those those. I think that would be a lot of fun to do is take a series that's been around that's so well known and then adapt your own um, ideas as to the origins of them. Although I'm sure Mr. Roddenberry would turn over in his grave at some of them. But um so that's what I've been watching. Just uh, and I'm watching it for a purpose, which we'll talk about on what am I? What are we writing? Um, but uh, that's what I'm doing. So Mary Claire, what are you watching? So season three of Fargo is winding down. The finale is next week, and it's one of the few shows that I watch like real time. Like I sit down every Wednesday at 10 p.m. Pacific, and we appointment view that show. And it's also. One of the only ones that my fiance and I watch together, like we're very cliche in the fact that we're always looking for a show that we can watch together. You know, does this look good? No, I don't like the actor in that. Or I think the writing is so, you know, Mike likes very straightforward stories. Who's my fiance and I like it as long as it's well written and there are engaging characters, but he's gotten a, He's gotten burned in the past, um, you know, for some of the movies or shows that I forced him to watch. Um, but Fargo took, and I think it's because it's almost perfect. Um, the three seasons of Fargo's, they don't share any of the same characters. Well, a few, but um, none of the same leads overall. Um, same timelines or locales. The guy from the first season isn't in the second season? No. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton? Is that who you're Oh, no, no. The lead, the lead guy. No, Martin Freeman? Nope. Not really? in it. I could swear. Yeah, it's an anthology series. Yeah, um, so none of the same leads. A few reoccurring characters that pop up here and there, but it's an anthology drama, so it allows it to sort of pull in bigger talent like Billy Bob. That's like American hor uh, yeah. Horror Story, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Um, Ewan McGregor is at the lead of uh, at this series, but um, but I think that's what makes the show sort of special. You know, it's the characters, but also the themes that it explores and the way that it explores them. You know, things move forward or backward, like it's set back in time a few decades. The cast changes every year, but uh, but Fargo never does. You know, the first season sort of paid homage to the movie. Um, and tracked really closely to the events of the film while season two went back in time. And season three tells the story of kind of like a sibling rivalry um, set in Minnesota um, with, uh, you know, uh, the parking lot king of Minnesota. His name's Emmett Sussie. That's Ewan McGregor's character and his younger kind of like buck up of a brother, Ray. And um, and they're both played by Ewan McGregor and um, and both are very Eden Prairie uh Minnesota, which I can say having lived in St. Cloud, Minnesota, but um, but it's kind of a backdrop of weirdos and kooky locales, and it makes the violence in the story kind of hit that much harder. So I'm really eager to see who makes it out of the season alive. It's up to you know Noah Hawley and his brain. That's the showrunner. Um, he does. He writes, produces all episodes, and um, all episodes. Yep. Wow. I know, and I try to tell my fiance Mike how difficult that is oh every God, time yes. we watch the show. I'm like, he does it all. I don't know how to drive that in harder, but um, but there's violence, there's humor, there's drama, and it's all sort of absurd and mystical. But um, but it's one of my favorite shows on TV for sure. Yeah, I watched. I think I watched the first season, and I thought I watched the beginning of the second season, and I thought the character from the first season met up with Billy Bob Thornton in a restaurant. And Probably it was, still first season. You might, you might be right. I don't, I <laughs> no, don't know. No, I'm right. But, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. So, But, uh, yeah, that's interesting that, that they're doing it in, as an anthology. Mm-hmm. It's a way to keep it fresh for sure. I, I, again, I don't want to sound like a rerun from last week. <laughs> I haven't watched any Fargo, but um, – Almost from the from the get go, it was a show that I knew I was going to kind of binge at, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been reading some stuff about how the creator of the show he he's not sure that he's going to do a fourth season. Yeah, he doesn't know if he's going to come back. Um, that's something that internationally, other television shows and other productions they, they they'll do that. They'll finish things. And here, just because the machine is so big to gear things up that we really like to do it until, you know, a, a lot of shows, I, I won't list any, but a lot of shows kind of ran out of gas before they uh, ran out of episodes. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I, I think there's a, an artistic merit to, you know, yeah. leaving before knowing you when, knowing when. But I also know uh, if somebody was waving that golf size check at me, I'd be like, <laughs> oh yeah, I can, I'll make up some more stuff. Well, that happened. We're, we're profiling Vince Gilligan today. That happened in Breaking Bad. They were done uh, with five seasons, and he said, that's absolutely it. We need to leave. It's time to go. And then they threw a bunch of money at him, and he ended up making us doing a sixth season. So uh, I think, you know, that's – you're right. But there's all there was always – it's hard to turn that money down. So what are you watching, Tobe? It was a busy week for me, and I did finish um, – I brought it up in the last episode. I did finish Top of the Lake, and again, I thought the characters were really fascinating, interesting people. And uh, even up until the last episode, there were still elements of character development, uh, which which I enjoyed because a lot of times, you know, that's first act stuff. Let's set up who these people are and then, you know, send them up a tree and then throw rocks at them. And uh, with this show, they, they did some character development. I, I For me personally, I thought the plot got a little bit uh, relegated to a less important status mm-hmm. and... Um, and that is typical of Jane Campion work. She's more interested in the character interactions than in the plot. And the and the characters were really solid, and you know, especially as just a regular white guy, to watch really well drawn non regular white guy characters right. is 
it's it's a it's a disappointment that that is so refreshing. It's mm-hmm. like it shouldn't be. You should be used to that. They, they, they shouldn't be remarkable, but they were. And and I know that they are going to do another season of it. I'm looking forward to that other season with even, Elizabeth Moss. You think? Yeah, Elizabeth yeah. Moss is is on board, and it's uh, she was good, but it won't be in the same place. Yeah, I'm interested because it's been a while. Like yeah. since the season, it, and I believe that the, the the season when it picks up, it's supposed to be five years Got after it. the events of this first season. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely about carrying the characters through, sort of the opposite of of the Fargo mm-hmm. model, which is the Fargo is the the, the constant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that the Elizabeth Moss's character will be the constant, and um, I, I look forward to it. who you're talking to so let me clue you in i am not in danger skylar i am the danger a guy opens his door and gets shot and you think that of me no i am the one who knocks if you recognize that iconic theme music or the voice of character walter white a scientist turned meth dealer then you may know the writer i'm going to profile today which is vince gilligan Gilligan was born in richmond virginia he had an early interest in cinema made eight millimeter films with his brother His mom always encouraged them to pursue the arts, and in Gilligan, this manifested as a writer. He attended schools that helped him develop his love for film, including the NYU Tisch School of the Arts. While in college, Gilligan wrote a romantic comedy called Home Fries, which was made into a film. This led him to be introduced to Chris Carter, the X-Files creator, through a mentor film producer. Gilligan's big big break came when he wrote and sold a spec episode of the X-Files called Soft Light. The show dealt in spontaneous combustion and also featured actor Tony Shalhoub, who would go on to star in Wings and Monk and, of course, the amazing Galaxy Quest. Gilligan confesses that he didn't think he could live up to the demands of being a TV writer with his subsequent deadlines and weekly page counts, but he did, wonderfully so. And I got to admit, that's something that I wonder about, too. If I ever got on a series, would I be able to handle the the physical demands of doing that? I can do the writing, but uh, wow. He would go on, Gilligan, to write 20 mar- 29 marvelous episodes of The X-Files, but his connection with the show didn't end after the show had finished its run. The Lone Gunman characters, their names derived from the Warren Commission's conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was solely responsible for the assassination of John F. Kennedy, were not created by Gilligan, but he did create a show after The X-Files called, appropriately enough, The Lone Gunman. The adventures of Byers, Frohickey, and Langley only lasted 13 episodes, one season, but it was a good transition for Gilligan out of being a staff writer to running his own show and writer's room. And, uh, you know, Toby, uh, in talking about this before the show, you mentioned something about the pilot of uh, Lone Gunman that I didn't know. It was really interesting. Yeah, there was a – this can be checked on, on YouTube. The the first episode, the pilot episode of it, and I believe they had to change it for air, was that uh, involved a hijacked plane – that was being flown into, and I can't recall off the top of my head if it actually were was the the World Trade Center uh, at the time, or if it was just a large uh, a, a skyscraper, and they, you know they changed the name. Uh, but it was obviously this was all pre nine eleven, but but um, but certainly close enough that I believe between making it and airing it, nine eleven happened, and they were like, well, we can't 
you know. But rather than shelve the entire project, they, I think they, they, they cut around it, they changed it perhaps. I think the difference too was that the 9-11 had obviously human pilots and this was fly-by-wire, right? Oh, I'd forgotten that was the biggest part of it, wasn't it? Because and that, at that time, that was a real, that was what was interesting also about that show was that the, the real gunman sort of grounded a lot of Conspiracy theories? Yeah, all of that stuff. Like the lone gunman was, a lot, was actually a lot more like it's all real and, right. you know, and... and <laughs> But and in a way that was very grounded and very real. So after The X-Files and The Lone Gunman, Gilligan did some spec work on a few series and was listed on the film Hancock as a writer in the second position, which if you don't know what that means, it means he didn't create the movie, but he did significant work on it, uh, enough that the Writers Guild gave him uh, credit for Hancock. Then came the idea that would rocket Gilligan into the stratosphere of television, Breaking Bad. He explains on an episode of Conan that he was talking with a friend, Tom Schnoz, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing it, uh, mispronouncing it. Uh, and they were bemoaning the lack of work, which is hard to believe considering who they were. But uh, Gilligan said, maybe we can become greeters at Walmart. And Schnoz said, well, maybe we should buy an RV and put a meth lab in the back. Uh, Gilligan says, as he said that, an image popped into my head of a character doing exactly that. An everyman character who decides to break bad and become a criminal. This became Walter White, a geeky high school chemistry teacher who's diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Needing money, he comes up with the scheme to cook meth using his vast skills as a chemist. Breaking Bad lasted six magnificent seasons and made Gilligan a superstar as the show became must-see TV, and the characters of White and Pinkman were also well-known as any pop stars. I, uh, I can remember thinking at the end of the season six that Gilligan was just becoming he owned Hollywood at that point. Um, you, you couldn't get any bigger than him as a showrunner. Um, Gilligan has said of his writing style on Breaking Bad that he basically copied the X-Files format when it came to his seminal show. Some of the narrative techniques that Gilligan perfected, like incredible openings that created suspense and interest, he learned at the feet of the master of the X-Files, Chris Carter. He, say, he says, if you look closely at Breaking Bad and any given episode of the X-Files, you'll realize the structure is exactly the same. The cold opening, the three to five minute teaser will be followed by four acts of the story. That's the structure I took, lock, stock, and barrel from the X-Files. The pre-credit sequence to each episode, non-linear or bizarre at times, but always compelling, is also a spirit cousin of the X-Files. Gillingan said it's also part of the show where they worked on the most. It's like hooking a fish, he said. You've got to set the hook early, especially in a situation where people's thumbs are hovering over the remote control. We would sometimes spend as much as a week, imagine that, trying to get the teaser, just the teaser right. It needs to be poured over very closely and given great attention to make sure we get it right. Breaking Bad has been called the worst idea for a TV show in the history of television. Gilligan himself has said so. While I doubt that's true, consider the pitch. A high school chemistry teacher who has terminal cancer decides to become a methamphetamine cook in order to leave his family with his cash, some cash. Where does that go exactly? Well, the television history and superstardom for Gilligan. It's a tribute to his skill that the character of Walter White is so sympathetic in the first season. I think in large part to the opening of the pilot episode. Uh, MC, do you remember talking about this in, in class, uh, the Breaking Bad pilot episode? Yeah, of course. That's a famous lecture of Mark Sebi, <laughs> I think, where you actually played, yeah, the first maybe like, what is it, two and a half minutes of um, of the episode of the pilot. And uh, and it reads much like, you know, a pair of dockers floating in the air, um, probably from the gap. Um, and uh, and they're sort of floating and behind and then it sort of cuts to, you know, Walter White 
in his underwear, um, face covered in a gas mask, and he's looking back in the motorhome. He's driving a motorhome crazy, kind of across the desert. Um, passed out in the back is Jesse Pinkman, a few other unconscious people, and guns and a climb and other equipment are sort of flying like everywhere. Yeah, and, and it's stuff. sort of like, what's going on here? And um, and Mark's advice is to write that scene every time. Every time. <laughs> every time. You know, think of that scene um, or think of that opening pilot of Breaking Bad when you're writing scenes. And it's helpful to think about that. I mean, it's what you mean is, you know, write more compelling scenes. You know, all scenes should ask what you say is a question, um, enhance a question with conflict, and then either resolve it or create new conflict, but also to start late in a scene as well. Um, so it's sort of, you know, what's going on, what's happening here, we're in the middle of it immediately, and sort of that conflict compels us to move forward. So, um, and it also helps us want to read more, you know, right. what's going on, right. where should we take this from here? Yeah, I, I mean, I doubt anybody who sees that opening can turn the TV off at that point. There's just no way. Well, t- you, you've seen the opening? I, I, I saw the, I've seen the pilot episode, and, and I, I completely agree uh, with, with what you're both saying. I think one of the other um, benefits of, of that opening scene, and, I, and, and I'm, something that he does in, in other episodes, is there's a certain we, – we, we, it's, a, it's a device you've talked about in class before about kind of starting with plot point two. Mm-hmm. And then jumping back and working towards it because it's nonlinear, it right? Buys you, it buys you a little more uh, time to get there in a nicer pace. And mm-hmm. you know, it's it's episodic television. It's it's a forty to forty five minute episode, but it tells a story that can span a good chunk of time, and it tells mm-hmm. the story, you know, very very efficiently and very fully. And um, but by people will people will go with you because they know this is all going to go crazy and that guy's pants are coming off and that right. that RV's going in that ditch. And what the yeah, hell is he doing? Initial, and, yeah. That initial hook, which you mentioned yeah. in terms of his writing style, because I think the next scene is him cutting to maybe him teaching or with his. I family. think it's at home. It starts at home. It does. It starts yeah. at home, but it's a little bit drier. You know, and you're kind of follow- much drier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a slower well, burn. So. Imagine the burden of taking a high school chemistry teacher from. Uh, and and would we sit there and watch just Walter White preparing his day, right. going like, to school? Where is this going? Yeah, where is okay, this going? This is sort of boring. So it sets the tone. Although, although strangely, uh, first episode of Mad Men does exactly that. Mm. Because the first episode of Mad Men, again, it starts as a thing that's already in progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not until the very end that you realize, uh, spoiler alert, yeah. um, that this is a guy who has a wife kids and kids married. to go mm-hmm. home to because mm-hmm. throughout the, the rest of the episode he conducts himself that he's not that guy yes this is the the at the end they, they play they play with that a little bit differently but well but that, yeah and there's that is a really great job of 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 showing you like this is going to be every episode is going to be a story about a guy that starts in one place ends in a completely right. different and place. they learn that in my opinion from those great drawing room mysteries like the agatha christie and hercule poirot because you have sometimes it takes time to get to the murder. And so a lot of times you see the body falling in the very beginning or you see uh, Midsummer Murders, which I'm a fan of, always does this. They start with a teaser. So it's a very well-trod trope. And I think it's very effective. Um, and I, I mean, I just I think the other point about this is when you see something that well-crafted, it gives you. I think subconsciously we want to watch this because we know that it started out this good and it's probably going to get even better. Yeah. We could say thousands of things about Breaking Bad. I think it's unique, powerful, dangerous. I think one of the interesting things is the violence, which, um, you know, it's not the gun to the head that you have to worry about. It's the sudden uh, object that impales you 
falling from the sky or an explosion of some sort that, that, that's not, totally unexpected. It's never the gun. It's always something else that kills the characters, which is kind of weird because Gilligan has, been, has said that he, he has passed out before in the face of um, extreme violence. And which I don't understand. I don't know where that goes. But I mean, wow. Um, talk about a guy who can write um, truthfully under imaginary circumstances. That's pretty, pretty amazing. I also ran across a tidbit I didn't know is there was a Colombian TV version of Breaking Bad called Metastasis, uh, which lasted only one season. And the main character is called Walter, Walter Blanco. And yes, this is real. This isn't uh, made up. This isn't fake news. Jose Miguel Rosas was the character Jesse Pinkman, and Saul Goodman is named Saul Bueno. Um, then came Battle Creek, which uh, Gilligan had a hand in uh, from a script that he wrote years earlier, but he didn't actually do much of the writing or the production. Uh, the next star in Gilligan's Firmament is based on a very popular character from Breaking Bad, the prequel to Breaking Bad Universe is called Better Call Saul, which is a three-season hit so far and shows no real signs of slowing down. The character of ethically and morally challenged Jimmy McGill is played to perfection by Bob Odenkirk, himself a prolific writer, with 38 TV shows and movies to his credit, but involved in hundreds of episodes. Odenkirk is listed on 129 episodes of SNL alone. Plus, he's got 108 credits as an actor. It's really amazing. We're going to have to profile him at some point, I think. So Gilligan, the once self-confessed bookworm, has created a body of work that is both com commercially and critically successful. He's won two Emmys so far, but his shows and actors, directors, and crew associated with those shows have been nominated and won dozens more, similar to uh, Woody Allen's uh, you know, awards and uh, Rod Serling. That's what I also think is really amazing about some of these writers is the fact that they, they elevate themselves, but they, all, they elevate a lot of other people around them. Um, I don't see anything right now listed in Gilligan's IMDb page as to future projects, uh, but after 20 years of increasing success in all aspects of the business, what else would he have to conquer? Maybe movies. I'd love to see him take a shot at a film just to see what he could do with the horror feature. Perhaps Universal should grab him for their Dark Universe series. It'd be a kick seeing this talented writer take a shot at something at, like Dracula. And, um, you know, I mean, if Vince isn't available, perhaps Universal will give us a call. We're incubating House Party 4 as we speak, so call us. Wait, what do you mean uh, we? Uh, House Party 4. I also don't we're want to be cut that, with that We're project. cutting that out of the podcast. <laughs> well, that's a, great, that's, a, that's a great profile on Vince Thank Gilligan. You. I, 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 um, like I said, I missed the boat on... Uh, Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad. Yeah. and so I did deliberately was not going to miss the boat on Better Call Saul and I can say probably right now it's my favorite show on TV mm. and I like that show um, but it's a it's one of we were talking earlier that's just one of my shows like, <laughs> that's one of Mike's shows as well that's on the DVR I, that show, I watch that when it. it's when <laughs> it's my time and the shoes are off and on the on the coffee table and um, I, I really uh, I'm getting. I adore that show. I love that show. I love how it's made. Uh, the the tradition of those very insightful cold openings mm. um, still is is elevated to. I mean, it, you know, I'm I'm the guy that keeps saying peak TV, and this is a great time for television. But like, it that's truly a, is. that's a television show that you can't copy it because you haven't earned the. The, the freedom that Vince Gilligan has earned to make that show. And, and, and actually uh, side note, 
they do a podcast for Better Call Saul, mm-hmm. and Vince Gilligan is in almost every episode. And he's a very down to earth, very open guy about how they do it. He's not trying to convince you that he can do magic and mm-hmm. that, that anybody else can't do it. But as Mark, you mentioned, he is an avid reader. And I think as writers, we have to read. Yeah, I, read, I, 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 I think read. that's the thing we skip over. And also consume the medium that we want to create. Gilligan, in the early days, he had, this is something I left out of the profile, but it's, 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 uh, I think it's important to understand. When he was a kid, his, his mother would take him to the school. To, she was a um, teacher or something at school. She, she would take him and his brother to school, and they would spend the entire time they were there uh, while she was working in the library reading. And then either his grandfather or an uncle had a library, uh, owned a library or something. And so that when they went to visit, he would spend his hours in, and that's, I say self-confessed bookworm without any background, but that's where it came from. And and he he said his favorite science fiction writer was Heinlein, who is very um, different from a lot of other, uh, more space opera than than like, you know, uh, have rocket will travel like Silverberg and stuff. But so, I mean, you can see the roots of where Breaking Bad, X-Files, all that stuff came from, was from his reading and his early experiences. And I'm, you know, I'd like to think that at some point that informed my work too, um, because I love that. That's just incredible stuff. I think Mary Claire is going to talk and we can segue into um, the histories, uh, the, this is a really banner uh, week for week. two shows. Yeah, two <laughs> incredible films. So this weekend, they actually premiered on the same date no in kidding. 1982. So it's the 35th anniversary for these two particular movies. We'll start with The Thing that premiered June 25th, 1982. So 35th anniversary of John Carpenter's sci-fi horror masterpiece. And a number of early drafts were written, but the final screenplay was done by Bill Lancaster Lancaster's son, uh, which no John, Car- John Carpenter, and he didn't go on to write, uh, you know, that many other things, but um, but I think he did good here, um, which, and John Carpenter said it was one of the best scripts that he ever read. So it's a really, really simple story, you know, an isolated setting with kind of like a shape-shifting monster slash alien, um, probably more so alien, but, um, but endless suspense that comes with it. I actually watched it again last night, and I was still scared again watching it. <laughs> um, I've, I've watched it a number of times, and every time I'm still terrified for them. Um, but, yeah, I think the suspense and the tension is what makes it great. I mean, the monster can imitate anyone it comes into form with. That's what they call it, sort of imitation or replication, um, allowing it to lure in more villains. So it's that paranoia. It's who is the thing? Who is the thing at this time? But and it was originally a flop, uh, I think, thanks in part to the next movie we're going to profile. But um, but yeah, over time, it's become kind of one of cultural lore. It's incredible. But, mm-hmm. That's a dangerous movie. Whenever it's on, got to watch it. Uh, you're going to yeah. watch it. Mm-hmm. And if it's pretty late and you're just doing that, wrap them up flick through the channels before you go to bed and it's, you know, 10 minutes into the beginning of the thing. You well, got, you're going to watch. Mm-hmm. I, I put some that, coffee on cause you're up. Talk about a great opening to, uh, that, that dog running across the snow mm-hmm. being shot at by, by guys in a helicopter. I mean, it's just, Norwegians. In, oh my God. You know that, uh, the, the original inspiration for that was John W. Campbell's who goes there and Campbell, uh, was legendary he he was the winner of one of the first Hugo Awards, which is the science fiction equivalent of the Oscars. So it's based in great material. The James Arness version, 
which was the the thing from another planet or something like Things that. Another world. Another world. Yeah. Uh, was fantastic. Also, yeah. um, even though the production values were a little bit less than wonderful. It's hampered by the technology of yeah. the time and but, the fact um, that he looks like a giant carrot. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> well, and also, didn't wasn't there one? At, wasn't there a version after? Two thousand eleven. Yeah. I didn't see that. I didn't even know it existed. Me either. When I was doing research on this, I was sort of like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. Yeah. Um, but I, we were discussing earlier that that the 2011 script was written by Eric Heiser. His name is hard to pronounce. Um, but he he did the script for Arrival. Um, so this was right. one of his first scripts. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm definitely going to go take a look at it. And you said it opened at the same time as? Blade Runner. Oh. <laughs> and that was June 25th as well, 19. 82, um, and kind of a neo-noir science fiction movie directed by Ridley Scott, written by two men primarily, Hampton Fancher and David Wells' people. And Webb. It's a, Wells' people. David oh, sorry. Webb. Excuse me. Webb, Webb. Peoples. Um, and a loose adaption of the 1968 novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip Dick. And it really depicts a dystopian L.A. Um, in which genetically engineered replicants are manufactured by this powerful corporation. And, on, and the use of replicants is banned on Earth. And, of course, a few of them come to Earth to extend their lifespan and, uh, and are needed to be tra tracked down by Blade Runner. The Blade Runners, um, which one Harrison is... Harrison Ford. Yep, Harrison Ford, Rick Deckard. Um, so it explores so many different themes, um, you know, it asks a lot of questions of its audience. People are still asking questions about it today. Um, and, and really, I mean, it's kind of coming back. I mean, it's premiering October, 2017 this year. Um, and Hampton Francher actually came back to, to do the, the screenplay for the sequel, um, Blade Runner 20, or it's 2049. You're right. Um, cause so, the original I think took place in 2019, mm -hmm. which is not that far away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could literally talk days on Blade Runner. Um, there's a great book, if anybody's interested, that uh, talks about the the incredible difficulty of getting that film done. And Hampton Fancher was the guy who wrote the original. And then David Webb Peoples, who also did The Unforgiven, uh, came in and did a lot of the rewriting. And he still gives, I mean, to his credit, he, he gives Hampton Fancher big props for the for the for a lot of what uh, Blade Runner became but the genius and and it's a great script and everything but the genius is Ridley Scott who continues to be one of our our greatest assets for uh, as a director a beautiful film even though a lot of it is about kind of ugliness uh, both physical and uh, you know in 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 the story sense but um this is one of those films there's like um there's certain music albums that are the ones that you've bought on every available format as time progresses, you know, like, well, uh, when I, I used to have the cassette mm -hmm. and then I got DVD and CDs mm -hmm. and that. well, Blade Runner, I've owned, uh, I've, I owned the VHS, which of course was the different cut. The first version of Blade Runner I saw was on Laserdisc. Uh, I cut class with two of my friends. Uh, did you, was it the one with, was it the original one with yeah. the voiceover? Yeah. yeah. Well, because okay. that's the thing. There's so many different versions yeah. of the film as well. And I've seen, so, I've seen all of them in the theaters. Well, I saw this one with uh, Dan Sarhad and Ryan Spiegel, if you're listening. Hey, how's it going, guys? <laughs> we cut class. We went to a place that rented Laserdiscs. We rented it on Laserdisc. I'd heard about it. I'd seen so much stuff before the film came out. 
um, when I was really little, and they were just they were hyping it, and then it was it, it was fina- financially it was kind of a bomb. It didn't it was. do well. It didn't connect with audiences. Although it's 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 so wonderfully but done. Yeah, but then as time progressed, it was like people really tapped into certain stuff, and unfortunately, uh, because this is a show about writers. Um, it was the Ridley Scott contributions. It was the the aesthetic. It mm-hmm. was a it was a, a future that wasn't shiny. It was one of the first sort of dystopian sci fi movies that wasn't you know pure allegory and right. like Zardos or something. It was just like no, it'll be just Zardos. like this. <laughs> it'll be just like everything is now, but the cars will look a little funnier and it'll be uh, dirty. Well, it and it posits a, they used a futurist on that film, which I've never seen that credit used in other, any other film who looked ahead and saw this is what might be. But they also call it future noir yeah. because of the hard-boiled uh, detective aspect. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's so beautiful about the film is it posits what it is to be human, which, you know, if you look at, I mean, you can take it to an extreme and say, well, these are these are machines, but they had the same hopes, dreams. I mean, they had pictures, they had memories, they had you know, it, it says to to, you know, and that should give us some hope for the future that you know, we, we can't lose track of that, that, that just because you're a different person or a different whatever, it doesn't mean you're not human or you don't have the same values as we do. So it, it talks about those bigger themes. Yeah, rather than simply viewing the replicants as monsters of the film, sort of embraces them as perhaps being even more human than the humans that are, right. that are in the film. And that's, that was uh, Tyrell Corporation's... That was their slogan. Yeah, slogan, more human than human. Um, by the way, if you ever read the if you ever read the uh, story that it's based on, it's completely different. I don't know how Hampton Fancher came <laughs> up with this, but it's well. Also, the name Blade Runner uh, is from a right. Burroughs, story. yeah, right. they because right. they liked it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's. But it, I mean, there's certain things that just come together that you know. It, it it is nice to have reference material to draw on, and especially now you can't make a movie unless there was already a comic book. Yeah, okay. But but sometimes you just get smart people together and they come up with something and that's guys like Sid Mead who was the futurist that just said like well you know let's just lots of angles we'll make things with lots of angles no curves well, the like rain that. the eternal rain yeah. the 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 uh really overwhelming asian influence mm-hmm. in the streets the you know the genetic uh you know uh, not snake or not what did she say not not snake not lizard, snake, or something. Yeah, and this guy goes, to... "I make you eyes." Next is six. I make. I mean, just so brilliantly delivered. Yeah. Uh, over. But, yeah. but and also, uh, kind of coming back, obviously, to that that thread within it. But but Mary Claire brought it up, the whole notion that the replicants are more alive than most of the humans. Right. And even though there's the ambiguity about Deckard's actual yeah. origin, mm-hmm. he's not alive. Yeah. Not according to Scott. Ridley Scott says Deckard is absolutely not a replicant. But there's so much, uh, cl- there's so many clues to that that he yeah. is. Um, it's hard to believe. And and like you said, he's not. He's more of a machine. Yeah, he's than not he alive. A human he's being. just going through the motions. Uh, you know, his interactions with with other people are terrible. You know, mm-hmm. and it's all, it's all like lift away the veneer of science fiction, and it's 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 just about um, people that can't connect. Yeah, and and For within the empathy. film, mm-hmm. there's the artifice of why they can't connect. See, this is this is a, a prime example of a film. Where all the elements, writer, director, producer, production, whatever, all the elements came together to make a perfect, almost a perfect film for its genre. It still remains heads or heads above anything else that uh, anybody's done, including I loved Alien, but boy, this one is just amazing. So, and and 
I've got the HD DVD version of it, if anybody needs that. <laughs> I've obviously got the DVD. I've got the Blu-ray. I've just got the Japanese Blu-ray, which a lot of the supplemental material is in Japanese, so I haven't gone through that yet. But if anybody needs a copy, uh, drop, us, drop us a line. We can yeah. take care of it. I think I have all the – I have a British version of the Laserdisc, and I have a whole bunch of copies. Does that too. one have the – there was a TV show in England um, that was all about, like, making movies. It's called, like – Clapperboard, uh-huh. and is that on that 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 laser disc? I'm not sure. I haven't actually watched it. The one I saw had that. It was a it was like an English TV show, and they showed like all the models, and they showed how they were making uh-huh. it. And and yeah, just... that's what we miss with streaming and with MP and with uh, MP4s. We don't get that that somebody has to invent that technology where you can see that second audio and listen to. Well, the you comments. can do that with uh, iTunes. Has that for some of the feature like. Um, they they do put the supplemental material. They'll have oh, into the MP3. Well, no, it's it's not. Uh, it's more for when you're streaming it from your oh, iTunes account. Oh, okay. Like if oh, you no. buy the movie, because we just got uh, Logan, the Logan yeah. release, mm-hmm. which was good. That comes with uh, the Logan Noir cut. And um, but does it have the commentary? And I believe it has a commentary, which is a separate one. And it's it's sort of funny because you can't you don't watch it and just like hit a button and the commentary kicks in. You can watch the commentary version or, or the uncommentary. With DVDs, it used to be a little different, and you just hit right. the remote a couple of times. Right. Well, somebody, I, I, that's what I really miss about uh, about streaming. So well, that was why I used to buy so many DVDs because I wasn't really a big VHS guy because they were they were you know combustible. They they well they broke. <laughs> They didn't really explode. Plus, they're lin- totally linear. Yeah, but with the DVDs, you could really. I mean, it, it was especially because it was at a time while I was in school, and it was like this. This I need to know not just this, how this happened. I need to know everything mm-hmm. about the day it was made. And actually, great movie to check out the the DVD for the supplemental material is uh, Superman for the Quest for Peace. What? Because it's a. Let's just say politely, it's a it's a flawed film, but one of the writers does the commentary. And it's hilarious because he's not <laughs> one of the main writers. He was like one of the guys they brought on very much towards the end and just said, can you help us patch this together? And when and, and that is a great, you know, it's it's sort of that the, 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 uh, the dirty part of Hollywood. But it's great because he's like, yeah, we, we were going to do this big explosion thing with a this and the this and the this. And they said, we don't have that kind of money. So we had them have a water balloon fight. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the danger in that, which I discovered was – People do hear that material, so you got to be really careful what you say and when you say it in Hollywood. So, okay, we're going to move on to uh, great, uh, freaking great movies. Yeah. MC, just imagine there was a Saturday, there was a Friday evening yeah, when somebody says, "Well, which one are we going to go see?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that that probably would have been me. So, um, okay, so we have some questions. Uh, people ask to be anonymous, mm-hmm. so we're not going to play their their voices or anything like that. But uh, what what we get this week? Yeah, but just as a reminder, if you do want to call in and hear your voice, um, 919 scripts, or you can submit a question via the uh, via the website, which is plotpoints.com, which is what a number of people have done here. So we'll start with our first question. Should I worry about budget when I'm writing my script? I'm not sure that any answer I give would be the right answer. Here's the Here's the determiner. If you're writing for a specific market and you know that uh, that market only sustains million-dollar films, then yes, you definitely want to work for bu- worry about the budget. If you want to sell a script, look, let's put it this way: if you're writing a script that may cost a million dollars, you're going to have 20 places to sell that script at. If you're writing a script that's 200 million dollars, and you know, you, even if you don't know what the budget is, you know a script that has, you know, 
superheroes and CGI and stuff. Two hundred million dollars. If you you, how many places do you think are going to make your script, especially if it's not a character or a franchise? Toby mentioned this earlier that you know if you don't have source material that's popular, they're not going to make your two hundred million dollar script. They're probably going to make your million dollar script a lot quicker than a two hundred million dollar one. So, my answer to that is you should never you should you should learn how to do that, but it shouldn't necessarily uh, change your creative decisions about the story unless it needs to because you're writing for a specific market. Okay, can I if I can yeah. follow up then because I think that's a, a, a good question. Do do you write to a budget? Yes, Mark, when you're working, I do because I've done. 30, 30, I've sold 30 scripts and I know how to do that. Would you have alternate versions if someone said, we got 5 million, we've got 10 million, you go, oh, let's have the car chase or... No, because it, a, lot, a lot of times the difference between a million dollar film and a $5 million film is the actors that they get. So in a million dollar film, you get, you know, Joe XYZ on a $5 million film, they can afford to put in a name and really... It just may this. Uh, there was another question in there that just may touch on, but a name is what you're looking for because that's what sells. It doesn't. Your concept doesn't matter. The production values don't matter. None of that matters when they go to sell a film. What matters is who's in it. Who can I put on the marquee? And you know, even even somebody like Howie Long, who is a a sportscaster, used to be a, a defensive end. Even somebody like that is a name that sells. Uh, movies as opposed to, you know, somebody you don't know. So you sell the concept, but you also Toby sell... Toby Walworth. Huh? Toby Walworth. Howie Long and I get mistaken. Yeah. Long's a, he was... Howie, he did. call me, bro. Yeah. Call me. But anyway, uh, he, yes, I do... And I don't change... I, the thing is, is here's my... Here's my, um, my thing, the thing is, is I write the best script I possibly can within the budget that I can. And if they come to me and say, open this up a little bit or give us a chase scene or something, sure. But it doesn't change that much um, because you're selling, I'm, at least for me, I'm selling to a market. So you'd recommend that a screenwriter be, be aware of budget, but obviously you don't know how much a specific thing costs. You don't know how much a helicopter costs right. to rent for a day. So it's not that sort of uh, <laughs> focus. But just be aware that if you write something that is going to look expensive, it's well, probably if you're, expensive. If you're writing – well, yeah, and you know, the, the thing has changed today because CGI is so, is so incredible. But I can remember uh, writing a script and uh, they came to me and said, we can get the stock footage for the helicopter scene in Terminator 2. You need to write a scene around that. So they gave me five or six stock footage scenes that they were going to somehow match up to the movie that I was working on. And so uh, so that's how you get the bigger production values out. But um, but yeah, CGI, I mean, you can put a helicopter blown up now and it's just CGI, but still that adds up too. So, so I, uh, yeah, anyway, I think, I think we've beaten that one to death, but uh, anyway, what's, what's next? Sims? What genre of script is the easiest to write? Um... Well, I think your answer would be... Yeah, none. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, what do you think? Um, You've I'd, written a few. I'd have to think that it's like whatever... whatever I, actually, I don't, I don't do this, so that's kind of the... My, I, like, I like indie movies, so I try to write in the indie movie space, but I think you should write what you like to watch because you're going to be more, more conditionally programmed to know the... The, the ins and, ins and outs. the outs and, and how that would go without necessarily having like an academic 
paper to, to, to refer to, but, you know, don't, don't sit down and write, uh, uh, a horror movie if you don't watch horror movies, mm -hmm. unless yeah, you want to write a horror movie for people that don't like horror movies. Uh, that's true and not true because creature features, horror movies are easier to write because there's some built-in things. There's a creature, there's a survival, there's some of the fundamentals of writing a film are already built into some genres. The, the problem comes like, I, it, I think it's extremely difficult to write a drama, to keep it compelling, to keep it moving forward. Um, I think without a plot line, without a storyline that moves the story forward, you're, you're struggling to make those characters compelling and interesting. Even a romantic comedy, which is basically a drama, a funny drama, or it has a, as a boy meets girl, they're going to develop the relationship. But sit down and try to write just a drama about, you know, Newport Beach. It, it, it's hard. I think it's harder. So I, I agree with you to a certain extent, but I also think that some of the elements of, of lower budget B movies and some of the, the genre movies, like we'll say serial killer movies. I mean, what's the, what's the plot in a serial killer movie? Find the serial boy meets serial killer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to me, those are built in. Those are, those are, and your job then becomes, how do I elevate that genre? Right, but, which is what makes it so difficult, I think. Because, yeah, you're mentioning that there are some built-in factors. Like, even, so I'm trying to write sort of like a horror creature feature. And, like, you know, midpoint is there, sort of the rug pull. You know, just things because it's like, you know, survival is ultimately the goal. So you have sort of that, that goal in mind for characters as you're writing it. But it is ultimately how to make it different or how to set it apart or how to elevate it. And it's kind of like, well, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so, well, so. and that's where Toby's point about knowing, understanding the genre comes in. Because you, you need to avail yourself of some more... You need to go more Mike and less Mary Claire. Not to say you need to go a little bit, a little bit more straightforward and and watch those films. But what? No, no. This this give, brings up to another question to me. Uh, Mary Claire writes that great creature feature. Uh, congrats. Mm -hmm. Sells it. <laughs> loves it. It's uh, you know it's it's not like an amazing hit where you can suddenly do anything you want to do. Not but like people, Sharknado, right? It's no Sharknado. But now people do want to talk to you, and then you go in and you're talking about your next thing, which is completely different. Mm -hmm. Like how how much is is not necessarily which uh, genre is easiest to write, but how much uh, how how pigeonholed am I going to be if the first thing that gets any attention or notice is a specific genre? But most of the time I write rom-coms. Well, you, you, the truism is once you're, once you're considered viable, you'll get a lot of meetings from different companies. Most of those companies will not want to buy whatever you're writing. They will just want to do meet and greet. Like they want you to remember them because you're on your way up. And so when I, my first uh, script that got no, uh, noticed was a sci-fi thriller and called Nemesis which eventually got made uh, into a different film. But um, the, I did meetings everywhere. And a lot of them, I mean, I did the meeting, the, the company that bought my first or that hired me to write a, a script in the first place said to me, we don't buy sci-fi, but we wanted to meet you because we like the writing. So you can also go in and understand your agent and your manager will be instrumental in this too. They'll say, you need to walk in and pitch this company another creature feature. Or they're not interested in your. They like your character, your female characters. I got, I've gotten that a lot. You know, your female characters are great. They call me in and they want to talk about the female characters. So, so you're, you're right. There is a danger in becoming pigeonholed. But there's also, uh, if you're a good writer, and they recognize talent. They really, really do. They, we make a lot of jokes about Hollywood, but they're good at evaluating talent. 
and they, they make a lot of good decisions based on those evaluations. So they can see you're a good writer. If you're a good writer, it, it goes across the board. You won't get, you might not get hired to write, uh, you know, a rom-com if you don't have any rom-coms, but if you go into the meeting and say, I have a rom-com, they go, oh, well, that's not what we thought, but let's, let's read it. They will ask to read it. And if it's good, they'll buy it. So it, it, you know, it, once you're heat, you're heat for, you're heat for, you got to, it's like Vince Gilligan. Once he sold soft light, his whole, his entire career after that was, was just a down, you know, I'm sure he worked his ass off. There's no doubt. Anyway, um, how about one more question and then we'll move on to, uh, so what's better in your opinion, uh, a well-written script or a good concept? A well-written good concept. Um, that's, I'm, I'm uh, channeling that's Toby. <laughs> <laughs> um, a concept. I think a concept is, I think you can be a shitty writer. And if you come up with a great concept that pitches or that log lines well. Um, well let, let's just make a point of saying, don't try to be a shitty writer. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, and, and I'm going to make an example and I'm going to denigrate a, a script, which I don't normally do because I don't, I, I don't believe in that. But the script to Goodwill Hunting. Mm. Yeah. The script to Goodwill Hunting is horrendous, but because the concept and the concepts were so good, and because the actors who did uh, was um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, they used to use it as writing as uh, acting exercises. So they created these characters, and and then they eventually put them all together. But the script is is miserable. But it was it was bought because of the concept, because of the concepts about a you know, a savant who has uh, anger issues and stuff. It's a, really one of my favorite films. Don't go reading the script. So, <laughs> so concept is always going to sell because concept is easy to pitch. This is, a, this is show business. We, we, we do talk about that. The business part of it is at least as, as, is more important than the show part of it. So uh, Sharknado uh, as a concept was freaking brilliant. Let's do, how can we do sharks on land? Oh, oh my God! Who thought of that? That's wonderful, and it 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 uh, spiraled into a franchise. Was it a well written script? Probably. Was it a great movie? It's a it is what it is. But the concept is what sold that that movie. And yeah, let me ask you guys this: If you see a trailer and you see a favorite actor in that in that movie, but the concept doesn't seem interesting to you, do you go? To the movie, or if you see a trailer and you don't know the actor, but the concept seems good to you. I mean, what do you choose? Yeah, I'll, I'll pick a I'll pick a good concept over, a, a, you know, a name actor. Somebody will, that you and like, I will, and I'll pass on a, you know, every 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 movie star has a bad day, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, and I don't have to go and see it. And that's uh, that's the determiner. I don't know what you what do you think, Mary Claire? Yeah, I would probably go concept. I mean, but also because it's so easy to, con to consume. Maybe that that other movie with that, my favorite actor a little bit later on yeah. DVD or word when it's available streaming. But yeah, I would rush to the theater for probably the concept. Yeah, concept is concept drags you to the theater or makes it first run. I got to see it kind of thing. And then um, there's wires underneath this table. Um, and then uh, um, the I think the actors and stuff like because we, we can consume so many different ways these days. So. Okay, great question. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I think uh, I think you can uh, mention again how people can send us questions. Yeah, call us. Call us. Uh, leave a voicemail. We'll play it on air. We'll answer your questions. You can reach us at 919-SCRIPTS. Or, again, if you just want to send us um, a question, feel free to leave it uh, in a comment on our website, on the blog. It's plotpoints.com. 
Yeah, and, and let us know if we can use your name in the podcast. We will keep it a secret if you don't want anybody to know how dumb your question. There is a there is a disclaimer in the uh, on the recording when you call that if you call, we will use your name if you use your name. So <laughs> not me because I I make fun of my voice all the time. All right, uh, so we're going to segue into this next segment, which is what are we writing? Although I guess my co-hostess and host are not writing much right these days. Is that true? Yeah, I, I've, I've um, I mean, I, I, again, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I've been real busy, but the truth of it is, uh, well, I have been real busy, but in, in the times when I wasn't really busy, I didn't think now would be a great time for me to... <laughs> no, I know your focus isn't there. What about you? Well, yeah, it's real work. I mean, that's the thing. I, I've said this before, but it doesn't just pour out of me. Like five or six pages will take me five or six hours. And it's always about trying to find that time. But a lot of it, you know, will get diverted into other things. And so it really is just putting in the work. And I still engage in, you know, conversation. I go to... Well, you do this. Yeah, this. But also I go to class every week with Mark. Um, I go to another screenwriting um, or script writing group as well to hear sort of their challenges and frustrations, um, work through their scripts because, again, I'm not writing. But um, but I still try to avail myself of, um, of sort of the conversation around all of it. And I will get to a point <laughs> where I will sit down one day and write out those pages. But it's just, it's just finding the time for me. Yeah, so that brings me... I mean... There's a couple things I want to say about this. One is you have, just like anything else, just like going to the gym or doing the chores or doing whatever you don't like to do. If writing isn't coming easy to you, you still should do, sit down and do it. it. It's even if you sit there and stare at the blank page, you need to get into a routine. So my first bit of advice, I have a routine in the morning that I do after I answer emails and check Facebook and the other social media and make a calls and make sure the world isn't ending on CNN, um, then I, I really push into writing and I do that kind of stuff. So whatever that is, if it's getting up early on Saturday, if it's going to bed late on Friday night, whatever it is, you guys need to do that. Um, and then the other thing, just really quickly, is um, I'm not working on anything. I'm working on two scripts, but I'm not working on anything else. But I'm thinking about working on uh, what, what's called a limited location script, which means uh, if you've ever seen Evil Dead or um, Cabin in the Woods or The Thing, sure, uh, any of those, uh, it's, it's, it's a location that they can build and just they don't have to travel all over the world. They don't have to show a bunch of it's it's mainly I. So what I started to do was watch Star, Star Trek Enterprise because it's something it's one of the Star Treks I hadn't seen to see how they handle limited locations, especially in the beginning of a series before it's before it's over before it's funded properly a lot of times there's a lot of t- there's a lot of uh we're going to be in this room and this room only kind of thing i think one of the f- best films i've ever seen maybe is 12 angry men which is basically a stage play so if you have an idea like that 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 i get those requests a lot of tips for those every day cuz they're cheap people want to make them oh um 47 meters down is another great limited location idea. You know, it's in a shark cage. It's probably a swimming pool, obviously, and uh, CGI sharks and stuff. But wow, what a great idea for a limited location. They're in a shark cage 47 meters down. And I, I just saw the trailer on Friday, and that kind of reminded me. When we talked to Jeff Lyons, uh, and he talked about how some movies have a situation and some movies have a story. Um, and, and there's not really anything wrong with that, even though one definitely seems 
pejorative to say, well, it's a situation. But he said that, for example, a movie like Fast and the Furious is a situation. Um, uh, is is that something that happens more with that limited location story, in your opinion? Is is that it's like we're going to create Twelve Angry Men? There's not so much a plot; it's the deliberation process of a, a, a of a, a, jury. a, a jury. And um, so, so it, it, I'm just curious, like for you to do that as an exercise, is there any kind of retuning of your own sensibilities? Or is it is it just writing and but it's writing and everything happens in one place? For me, probably the king of limited location is a writer named Larry Cohen. He's legendary. He's probably got we should probably do a profile on him because he's insanely successful. But he did phone booth and cellular and uh he's done a lot of smaller budget films. And his characters, I think the character in Phone Booth does change. It's the uh, uh can't remember the name of the act. Colin Farrell. He does change. He's this, you know, smart ass, walking, talking, Saturday Night Fever kind of guy who then by the end of the movie has been humbled by his experience. Um, so Lyons uh, determiner was, does the character change? And that makes it a story as opposed to we just go through a something and it's a situation. A story become you know, just plot point after plot point. So it, I could answer that question in a lot of different ways, but I think that if it's written properly, it is a story that takes place in a limited location. And I, I'm struggling. I have a couple ideas for this, but the, the unfortunate part of this is the one idea I have, I'm afraid to research it because I don't want to be on the FBI database. <laughs> Which is a real thing these days, folks. I, you know, I hate to tell you this, but I'm I'm afraid to do research on this script, and I need to do research. I'm even afraid to call the FBI and ask them for help, and I'm never afraid to call the. By the way, you can call the FBI and ask them anything you want. They have a public a PIO, public information officer, who will answer your questions to the best of his ability. All of the the Army, the Navy. All the armed forces, all the government offices. Now it may take you a while. The FBI, when you call the FBI, they call you back two weeks later, after they've checked you out and stuff like that. Oh God! <laughs> but anyway, um, so so the limited location stuff is hard to do. It's hard to do because it you one of the what was the the most brilliant uh, hard uh, limited location film that I've ever seen is a film called Hard Candy, which takes place in a house. Oh my God! And it is wonderful. It's completely off the hook as to what's going on. And it's, it's amazing. But if you look at it, it has these milestones that, the, that, that this character wants to accomplish. She does not change in the end of the movie. So it's more of a situation in her aspect. But the, the male character, there's only three characters in this. And Sandra Oh is a neighbor who comes knocking on the door. She has five lines and that's it. So, but anyway, if you want to see a brilliant example of limited location, limited budget, Great plot, all this other stuff. Hard candy would be it. That's a that's a shining example. All right, so uh, we're about to wrap up here. Um, I'm gonna do my. Uh, we haven't decided. If you guys who are listening to this have any ideas as to what to call this. Toby came up with the first uh, appellation, which was uh, Fireside Chat, and I was thinking of calling it Act 3, but this is a segment that I just basically talk 
stupid about no i don't know <laughs> but I, I if you have any ideas please call uh, 919 scripts or go to plotpoints.com and leave us a message okay so what i'd like to say this week is for me writing is the most important thing that's happened to me and i don't mean because of the money or the small amount of notice i've been given as a professional writer no this is about who i am as a person Recently in my script writing class, a boisterous discussion came about because one of my students was writing a TV episode about a transgender character. The character was wooing another character who didn't know, couldn't tell the woman in question had transitioned. The discussion went many places, some that didn't have to do with writing, but I allowed it. I felt it was important for the writer to hear what people might be saying about this topic. As I discovered through the intervention of my co-host, MC, there's a lot of misinformation out there about transgender men and women. MC is a fan of the show Survivor and mentioned Zeke Smith, who was outed while on the show. She also sent to my writer's list a link to Zeke's story written by him. I read it and was informed. I realized I was misinformed about a lot of what it is to be, a tra to be transgender. What's important here is the process. If I had been the writer of the TV episode, I might have done some research and discovered Zeke's or others' stories on my own. I tend to do the research on things I don't know about in order to better inform my characters and stories. But if I had not, the process of writing it and giving it to people to read would have at some point impacted my life and I would have somehow, some way become knowledgeable about it. In the process of learning, I would also be shaping or reshaping my attitudes and understanding of a world in which I don't participate. I would have, to be fanciful, become enlightened. Which brings me to the point of this topic. When I became a writer, I quickly realized that the process of creating characters and worlds was coming from within me. The hours I'd spent reading were finding their way to the page. My life experience, experiences were also informing my work, of course. This was the great part of becoming a writer. However, I also realized that in channeling myself into a lot of the characters I was creating, I wasn't liking myself much. I saw pettiness, unresolved anger, inappropriate attitudes, and a score of other traits that I didn't like about myself clearly because I imbued my characters with those traits, ugly as they sometimes were. Plus, in learning about writing and exploring the craft, I was exposed at various points to thinkers and philosophers like Aristotle, Joseph Campbell, and the existentialist Kierkegaard and Sartre. I was raised Roman Catholic, but I learned about Buddha, Buddhism, Islam, the Jewish faith, and more as part of my growth into becoming a writer because I needed my characters to express themselves in those faiths at times. My writing was opening me up to self-examination in many, many directions. It was becoming a college of self, so to speak, and I was the topic of study each and every day. Every character you write should have a journey. That journey leads to discovery and change. That goes to the Jeff Lyons point about its story versus situation. And that's appropriate to every story in some way or the other. Once you get that, you begin to see many ways to accomplish it. But this should also be a journey about, of discovery for a writer, too. We need to write truthfully in imaginary circumstances. That requires honest and insightful evaluations of how we feel about many things. To write a proper villain, you have to be that villain. To write a woman, if you're a man, or a man, if you're a woman, you have to immerse yourself in that gender and understand the peculiarities of that gender. To write old, you need to understand old. To be a great writer, or even a good one, you have to be honest. You have to be fearless to go where most won't. You have to entertain uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. You have to tread the landscape of your inner self and bring those feelings to the fore, naked and screaming though they may be. If your writing isn't changing you, if you're not discovering new worlds inside yourself as you're doing so for your characters, then you're only doing a partial job of it. In order to write truthfully in imaginary circumstances, you have to be all kinds of people, places, and things. 
Understanding and accepting those people, places, and things will in fact change you, hopefully for the better. Even though I'm still a work in progress, I know my writing has changed me. I become more tolerant, more patient, although some people would say not. I've also become brutally honest about my feelings, and hopefully that recognition will not only inform my work, but also inform my life. I can't wait to see how much better I will be while I'm working on my next script. There's a quote, writing comes more easily if you have something to say. I'll add to that, it also comes more easily if you have something to say about yourself and your journey. A corollary to that dot is writing is easy. All you have to do is sit down and open a vein. So remember to be open, fearless, and always to write truthfully in imaginary circumstances. And by all means, keep opening those veins. Thanks for that, Mark. Uh, that's it for us today here at Pop Points. But again, if you want to reach us, uh, send us a voicemail or uh, a comment or a thought on the website. It's plotpoints.com. You can reach us at 919-SCRIPTS. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And also tell a friend. Tell a friend about us. You know, we want to keep doing this. We want to hear your feedback. Um, so come back to us. Uh, but uh, I think that's it for us today. Thanks, guys. I had a great time today. It's always a wonderful, wonderful experience to be with you. Thanks a lot.